We live in a day where Christians do not know the Bible. And it really is to our shame. Because as 2 Timothy 2 verse 15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And Christians today don't believe that the word is sufficient to save. That's part of the problem. Yes, we may say we believe in it being inerrant. You know, the original writings, how perfect they were and how God has allowed it to come down over the last 2,000 years plus uh, into even our English language and preserved it in such a way that we can compare and find how incredibly accurate it is, even in our translations. And yet, when I look around, there are so many people who are afraid to proclaim the gospel because they don't even know what it is. They don't know how to tell you who God is because they don't know who he is. And so what I'd like to embark on a journey with and begin basically a series of audio recordings are some of my personal experiences when dealing with Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, and it's something I know that many people almost shy from. Uh, you know, they, they come knocking at your door Saturday morning, or you see them, like in my case, multiple times at Walmart, uh, just out there with their, their tents and their publications and stands. And it's almost intimidating. Because they come up, they seem so just happy, gleeful, you know, ready to present information and want to talk to you about the kingdom. And if you're not prepared, if you don't know God's word, you will likely stumble or you'll simply just reject them outright and shut the door on their face, not realizing that these people need to know the gospel. They need to know our Lord and Savior Jesus because they don't. So, with that, and I want to continue on, even in just 2 Timothy real quick, because I want to lay the burden on everyone's feet. We're all called to be apologists. We're all called to know the Word of God. We're all called to proclaim the good news. But you have to do it in a way that is loving and also understanding the spiritual aspect of all this. So, this is 2 Timothy 2, verse 24 through 26. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Did you catch that? Do you understand what the word is saying? These people are literally held captive by Satan in this false system to do his will, to spread it around the world, and to infect other nations with what looks good, but is damning, literally damning. And so when you are faced with dealing with, with Jehovah's Witnesses, you cannot be 
quarrelsome, you must be patient with them because your heart is going to ache and break when you start to really dive into these things and start talking to them. Because even though they are trained, and yes, just having understood what they do and talking with an elder for at least 50 hours and getting to know him personally, getting to know you know, their daily activities, what they do inside the Kingdom Hall. Uh, in fact, many of my conversations were in the Kingdom Hall in one of the classrooms. Um, getting to see all this and, and understanding, you know, they come together on Thursdays, not so much for a service, but for almost like a, an apologetics class where they literally have a table with two microphones set up so that as they converse it's almost like role-playing where they're going to ask the tough questions that they may run into when knocking at your door and give a better answer than what you're prepared for what most people are not prepared for this is part of their weekly gathering and yet how much are you studying this should convict you so with that uh, the first story I'd like to get into is actually one uh, that was from my latest conversation with this man, and I won't name drop, but um, we had been discussing several categories of theology, uh, and our total conversation ended up being over three hours, but at one point, um, he mentioned something that really took me back. I was not I was, I was more shocked that he raised this. And it was really about the gospel. It was about believing in Jesus and not works-based salvation. And yes, we had mentioned James. We'd kind of uh, argued over James a little bit. And uh, again, I'd love to get into that for another day. But at one point, he just says, well, listen, um, I thought the Bible teaches that we are, it's those who are exercising faith. And I'm kind of looking at him like, okay, well, how do you, what is this? That doesn't ring a bell with me. Um, could you point that out? And so he didn't have the verse or section memorized. But so he, on his, uh, his tablet, he does a word search. And lo and behold, he pulls up and he begins to read. So I'm going to read it to you exactly as he said it. And uh, probably many of you will think, wait, are you for real? For God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son so that everyone exercising faith in him might not be destroyed, but have everlasting life. That's right. If it sounds familiar, it's because it is. It's one of the most quoted verses of the evangelical world. John 3.16, but that was read from the New World Translation. Uh, in fact, the 2013 version. So he, he reads this to me, and in, with a perplexed face, I'm thinking, are, are you serious? And I told him, I was like, you just quoted John 3.16, but it doesn't say exercising faith. It says believing. And so instead of arguing simply over that word or that phrase, I said, hold on. Let's turn to John 3, and let's examine this in light of the scriptures. Because if you don't know this, 
many, many of the Jehovah's Witnesses do not actually read their Bibles. In fact, when they tell you that they do, it's more so that they follow along with a publication that references sections of the Bible, and they may even go through a chapter, but they're literally led along with questions and answers where they're given the answer, and as you heard it right there, there is the, the text is manipulated. So not only are they led along like a little school child, but their own text is manipulated to keep the watchtower theology and doctrines kind of in light and view. And so many of the verses where Christians would normally turn to have been changed or manipulated in the English. And I'll get into a, a way to kind of get around that <coughs> using their own kingdom interlinear Greek version. But so I said to the man, listen, let's turn to John 3. Because if you can take a Jehovah's Witness to the text and demonstrate that the idea or what what the Watchtower is trying to teach cannot be held up in light of the context, it will destroy their argument. This is the best defense you can give against these guys. And you must do this. As any Bible-believing Christian, you must know the Scriptures and take them to the Scriptures so that the Word of God can break down these barriers, can reach through the heart of stone, you know, that's what the Word of God is meant to do. We simply plant a seed and God lets it grow. So, with that, um, I'm going to actually go through this section, just as I walked this man through this section. But again, in teaching the Bible, you must also know how to harmonize the Scriptures. So I took him to John 3. And as I'm looking at it right now, I actually said, listen, let's start in verse 14. Because let's get the context. And every time I, I had any conflict with, with, with the verse with this man, I always took him back to the context and read at least two verses before and two verses after. So I took him back to John 3.14. And it reads, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And so I stopped right there. I said, what is this talking about? Are you aware of the, uh, as one references, the fiery serpents? And he's just kind of looking at me. And I said, so first off, we have to understand even what this verse means. John 3, 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So I said, let's turn back to Numbers 21. And yes, this is where when you know your scriptures, and of course the Holy Spirit can lead in this too to, to remind you of these things. Uh, and it's amazing how many times the, the Lord did this in our conversation. And I said, let's turn to Numbers 21. I said, let's actually read about this serpent and what Moses did. And so we turned back, and I took him, and I began at 21 verse 4, again to give the context of this, which reads, Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke out or spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. 
So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. So having read this, I'm looking at this man and I said, all right, do you have the picture now? Do you understand what happened? I said, first off, the people griped and complained against Moses and the Lord. So in a form of judgment, the Lord sent the fiery serpent into the congregation. And those who got bit, they died. Now, of course, you can tell it wasn't immediate because some of them began to cry out, Lord, we have sinned. We've sinned against you and Moses. And they cry out for Moses to intercede. Starts ringing a bell. And so as I took him back, I said, now that we have that full picture in our minds, let's return back to John 3 and see what it is that Jesus is trying to, to tell us here. And so I took him back. And I said, as it says, John 3, verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, right? The standard, this was the means by which God provided a way for those who were bitten to survive, to live on, right? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And I said, you understand, right off the bat, who was the one who interceded? It's Moses. Who is the one now in this verse interceding? It's the Son of Man. It's Jesus. He's starting to get the picture. And I could tell as this guy is starting to, to, to grasp what I'm teaching. And I said, so let's continue. So that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Verse 15. There's that word believes. So, do you see the correlation? Those who looked at the standard, right? They lived. Those who look to the Son of Man who intercedes now, they will live. But where the serpent was a physical, we're talking eternal life now. We're talking a bigger picture here. And so, then I went into verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, right? But have eternal life. And so I'm explaining this to this man and I can see it like a light bulb going off in his head. And he's already beginning to go, oh, wait a minute. And as, he's, as the, these gears are turning, I said, listen, but we, gotta, we can't stop right there. Because a lot of people don't understand that you have to continue on in this section. As, as amazing as a verse, as, as John 3.16 is, you must continue to give the full picture because you have to allow the weight of it to bear upon them. 
So verse 17, for God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And I said, listen, we understand that Jesus is coming again, which they actually deny it to a part. Well, I'll get into that in another one, but that he is coming again to judge, right? But do you see what he's declaring here is the serpents were sent as a form of judgment. Jesus did not come this time as a form of judgment, but rather as a means to save the world. That's what this correlation is. That's why it says, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. But you have to move on to verse 18. You have to. He who believes in him is not judged. Is not judged. It's not a future judgment. And I'm telling this to this man. I said, in your system, you, you believe the judgment is, is later in the future in the sense of you have a time to demonstrate your faithfulness. They believe that when they are resurrected in the kingdom, if they are not of the anointed, which you know none of them would really uh, would say that they are, that they believe it is then that they must live perfectly. And then it is that that is the judgment. No. I said, listen, John 3, 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Do you get this? Do you hear this? It's not a future point. If you are not believing in him as this is as what this text is teaching, right? He is the intercessor. But why why is this the point? Why is it that you have already been judged? Right? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And yes, it does continue. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. But let's let's bring this back to the serpents in the wilderness. I told this man, I said, Listen, where they were bitten by snakes, we are bitten by sin. We are born into sin. We are born into iniquity. We already have the poison within us and we are dying. We are perishing unless you turn to the one who intercedes on our behalf. That is why this is such an amazing act of love. It's because the father sent the son to become the very one that we must look to, the very one who bore our sin, our penalty, our shame upon the cross. And it is now that we can look to him. We can see that he lived a perfect and righteous life and that he then became the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world by bearing that upon the cross. And so we are called to look and believe. Jesus is our intercessor in that means. That is what this text is teaching. And as I'm explaining this to this man, he literally just goes, are are you telling me all I have to do is believe? Yes. Yes. Again, what did it say that they did? It says that they, they didn't 
exercise faith in the wilderness. No, they turned and looked to the standard on which Moses raised with the serpent and they were healed. They were healed. So you were called to turn to Christ. Look to him who was raised up on the cross and be healed. That's what this text is teaching. So folks, you have to let the text explain itself. You have to let the text bear upon them. And don't be afraid to do so. Because this is the power of the gospel.